Welcome to Sober Holic, a podcast about Christian recovery, where each week we explore topics that can free you from bondage and strengthen your relationship with God, others, and yourself. Now, your show hosts, Roger and Jason. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to Soberholic, uh, where we believe recovery is for every person, every minute, every day. And that's what our, our story, our show is all about, is trying to spread the idea of recovery throughout the church, throughout the, really throughout the world. And, yeah. Uh, we've had the opportunity to reach many places. Um, what you may not know, Art, well, I don't think we've told you, but um, we've currently found out that our show's been listened to in 35 states. Now, we never thought that would have happened. Wow. That's but um, that's cool. I mean, that God is, is blessing our efforts here. Uh, we have still found it in- really interesting that people would listen to two country boys talk on on a podcast we don't even understand each other sometimes but people yeah no i listen to some of them i'm like what in the world is going on here they listen but they they do seem to be happy we are that you know because we believe recovery can be happy and i found that um i found hope i found hope in christ and i found hope in recovery yeah well i love the part of the uh a step uh, reading that says that uh, we have come convinced that God wants us happy, joyous, and free. Yeah, yep. and I found that yep. cool. Well, um, today, as we were kind of talking about before we kicked this off, we're in the studio with Art Wimberly. Uh, Thrive Birmingham is is where his nonprofit is, and we brought Art in to talk to us a little about about codependency. Codependency mm-hmm. is one of those things that we talk about in recovery a lot but really don't know what it is. Yeah. And so we figure what better person to talk about it than than one who is than one. a codependent himself. Yeah. Yeah. Card carrying. Yeah, card carrying. You earned your seat in recovery, right? Yeah. Uh, it was interesting because when I came into the rooms of recovery about 20 years ago, uh, it was because of the addiction of my oldest son. Um, it wasn't about me at that time. I wasn't ready to even start my own recovery, but the crisis in our family, my wife and I, were advised by counselors to find a group. And it, back in Birmingham at that time, 20 years ago, Al-Anon was the place. And so we started going to those groups. But the interesting thing is, uh, even when I began to hear about codependency there, uh, I had a little bit of a flashback because 11 years prior to that, I was going through a rough time uh, with seeing a counselor about how to try to handle raising my three sons while I was working on my marriage. And, uh, uh, one of the sessions I was talking, I don't even know what the topic was, but I'd been carrying on for a while. And finally, you uh, carry, me carry, I know it's incredible. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Isn't that. it? Nobody would believe it. Um, and, uh, I was going on and on about all the different efforts I had made to try to protect this important person in my life from their addiction uh, how I would cover for them with their job, how I would cover for them in the home, in the community, with the families, and how I took up the slack. And and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was kind of doing this little monologue of, you know, all the heroic efforts I was making. And I'll never forget at some point the therapist leaned over, tapped me on the knee and said, Art, you're not that good. You're not that good. And it just, I'm like, wait, what? And it, he, it was like somebody putting a hand in my face and saying, stop, right? right? Listen. And so that was my first, and that's when he introduced the concept of codependency to me. So I always tell everybody, no matter where I'm at and where I'm teaching, 
that I'm the oldest codependent in the room, no matter what your age is. Cause I think I was told that in 1989 before anybody I know. <laughs> right. So, so they identified you that way. Before right. I, I right? may have been the starter of the whole thing as far as, <laughs> in, in Alabama, as far as I know, I'm not, I may have been the first carrier. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not carrier. sure. Yeah. Patient zero. Right. Patient zero. Um, but I, I kind of got it a little bit that day, but I only got a little first level learning. Uh, he made me understand that the motive behind what I was doing wasn't quite as pure as I may have thought it was, and it wasn't really heroic. It was just my dependency on the person who was chemically dependent and the fear that that brought of losing the relationship and that type of thing. So I was doing all these things that were unhealthy, uh, but at the time I didn't see it that way. So I got that part, and that was helpful. But you know what? I didn't really understand the subtlety and the deadliness of codependent behavior at that point. It was much year, uh, many years later in my own recovery when I was doing the work for myself in the 12 steps that I finally began to understand, you know what, this is really underneath all addiction. And I kind of had to graduate from when I got sober, it was kind of graduating into, okay, let's start working on the codependency now. Right. Yeah. So, so what is a, like a just quick, like, um, for dummies definition of codependency. Okay. Well, that's good because it's, it's a term that's been thrown around for so long. It got into the culture probably in the seventies, maybe, uh, because this country was experiencing, um, a, a rash of chemical dependency and alcoholism, drugs and so forth. And what the helpers began to see, whether they were social workers, counselors, pastors, recovery people began to see was, when we treat the abuser, the, the substance user, the drug user, the alcoholic, whoever, uh, there's also a family system usually tied to it. Maybe it's just a special other, a spouse, but usually it's a spouse, maybe a family. So there's always somebody tied to it, and they needed a name for that significant other person. And so if the person they were treating was dependent on the substance, the other person became the codependent. Okay, so that's how it kind of got into the nomenclature, how it got into the literature and began being talked about. And the whole idea was that somebody else's sickness in uh, drug use or substance dependency then made the person close to them sick as well because they began to alter their behavior away from what's normal in order to keep the relationship with the user. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But that wouldn't necessarily mean that every time you have someone like me, an addict, there's a, you know, depending on alcohol or whatever, that, that doesn't always mean there's a codependent, does there? Or does it? Well, uh, again, if, if the substance user, the alcoholic or the heroin user or whatever, or, or the behavioral addicts, for instance, my recovery was not about substance so much as it was about a behavioral trait. I dabbled with substance. I struggled with substance a little. I misused or overused substance, but that didn't catch me. I got away from that. Mine was much more ingrained and mine was what we would call a behavioral addiction and it was sexual addiction. Okay. So that was what trapped me, and that was what my addiction was. So uh, whether it's substance or behavior, almost every addict is in relationship with a significant other person, and that other person, if they're sticking with the addict long enough, will probably have to admit that they have some codependent tendencies. Okay. It would be rare 
It would be rare for a human being not to struggle with some level of it, but it usually doesn't get exposed until there is a significant time with another person in close relationship that they want to preserve that relationship that it becomes it comes out. Well, it's funny you say that because a lot of times when I talk to sponsees or someone new that, that I start working with with a recovery, whether it's sponsoring or whatever, uh, I, they'll tell me, well, I'm alcoholic or addict. And then I'll say, well, who's the codependent in the family? Because there yes. seems to always be one. Yeah. If, if you think, if you look at family systems theory, a lot of the psychological theory, a lot of the social systems, what you'll see in almost any family system or, or a work team or a baseball team or whatever, if you're together long enough as a unit, then people take on roles, right? And to a lesser or greater extent, each of us has some role that is somewhat codependent. So I like to think of it this way. Uh, if you take of the, the root word dependent, okay, uh, we were created, I believe, by a divine creator who wanted us to be dependent on him, okay? Uh, he also wanted us to have a relationship with other people, Right. So there's an interdependency. Right. The problem uh, with most of us is we either want to be totally independent of God or others or we become too dependent, which is where codependency comes in. Uh, Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Tell you, you me, he, a bell here. He yeah. needs a degree in this stuff. Yeah. Well, I have one. <laughs> it's it's by the pain and suffering that I've caused myself. <laughs> I've got my 10,000 hours in, right? That's why, <laughs> right. As, as one of my therapists used to say, yeah. I know about it because I are one. I right? are one. Right. So now over time, what I began to see when I got sober 16 years ago, had a vital spiritual awakening. And then I got sober, and I started changing everything. But what that did, the sobriety was the tool that began to wake me up to the other character defects as I did my 12-step work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I began to see that a habitual pattern for me was not just acting out sexually. One of mine was anger, okay? And then some more subtle ones came along, manipulation, right? And then another subtle one came along, self-pity. And another one, so, and they kept coming and they kept coming. Well, those were all hidden things that were the real character flaws that were down beneath the, uh, the addiction. The addiction was kind of the bad fruit out on the end of the limb. Mm -hmm. The character defects or the flaws are when you go back down the tree into the trunk and down to the root. Right. And they, they were existing underneath way before the addiction mm -hmm. and they, and they lasted after I got sober. So those were the next things I had to see that had been hidden by addiction for 40 years that then had to go. So what is the codependent? What are, what is a codependent person addicted to? Okay. Well, they're usually addicted in some way to the relationship with the person who is the addict. So they find their identity wrapped up in enabling slash helping Right. Somebody else. So think of it this way. If, if that relationship has become unknowing to you as a codependent, the relationship has kind of become life in a way. It's life-giving in a way. Now, don't get me wrong. God intended for deep relationships, marriages, friendships, that type of thing, to be life-giving. But when they take on a role and they become too much of life, then they begin to define our identity, then we can pretty much trust we have been acting in codependent ways, right? You use one of the terms, enabling, right? Okay, I'm helping, I'm over-helping, right? I'm helping when I shouldn't, 
right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm using manipulation to keep you in the relationship because it means way too much to me. Maybe I'm doing things for you that I never should do anyway. Is that always motivated by fear or maybe most of the time motivated by fear or like the fear of losing the relationship or I I think generally fear is usually at the core. Now here's, here's kind of where it gets tricky because most of us, before we get awake and aware to our tendencies of codependency, we would couch them is, is love. Okay. We just love too much. I knew it. I knew that was my problem. I just love too much. No, that's not it. Or we might couch it as I'm just kind of heroic, right? I just go the extra mile. Or we might couch it as I'm just too stubborn to give up on that person, right? And there may be a level of truth to all of those, but I think if you look underneath that, then we begin to see the mixed motive. And usually at the bottom of that, there's probably a fear. Right. Well, that's what I see most of uh, the people that I've seen deal with codependency. And I'm sure I probably have t- tendencies, and you'll hear me say that what they deal with because I always seem to say that I'm not a codependent person. Yeah. But I, I may be in, in ways I don't know. I'm not aware to it if I am. Uh, but what, I'm, what my point is this, is that the people that I, that I see that will identify with codependency or maybe not even identify with it yet that have an addicted loved one or someone struggling and they're the other half of this – is that um, it's kind of the story kind of goes like this. I, I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to love them and I'm right. supposed to do this for them. Jesus came to serve and I'm going to serve. It's not about me. It's about, you know, what I can do to show them how much I love them. And it, but it gets to a point where it's, it's, it's really sick. It's not a very healthy relationship at all. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, I, I'll tell you a quick story if I can. Sure. Um about, um, I guess we had been, my wife and I were, were very blessed that we both were drawn into recovery at the same time. First, because of the addiction of our oldest son, okay? But then both of our lives, the, the stress and the strain of that began to show us we needed to do our own work. Mine for my addictive behavior. And she, not so much, she was not the addict in the family, but she would have said she fit really the codependent, right? Um, she's a hard worker. She, typically tries to always do what's right. Um, she wants everybody else to kind of do what's right. She tries to keep people in line that way. And uh, th- those are great things to build a family around and to keep structure in and do it. But what she found herself doing over time was doing too much of the work of other people, right? So it was easy for her to come in. So, for instance, our one of our early entrees into recovery was through Celebrate Recovery, Okay. And so in Celebrate Recovery, you will hear, because it is a ministry uh, that attempts to uh, minister to the brokenness uh, of all the broken human condition, not just substance abuse, right? Not just drug use, right. not not even just sexual addiction or gambling addiction or whatever, but also to this thing called codependency, right? So it was real common at a, at a Celebrate Recovery meeting to hear someone stand up and say, hey, you know, my name is Art or Joe or John or Susan or whatever, and I struggle with codependency. Right. Right. And and so that's a little different because they're saying where I may have had problems with substance abuse in the past, that's not my problem. Maybe I never did, but what I've recognized is the deepest thing I need to work on in my recovery is my codependent tendencies. Part of the problem with that is, just like what we talked about earlier, 
the term is so pervasive now and ubiquitous in the culture, it's gotten real vague as to what it really means, right? Mm -hmm. So over time, what we began to do is to study it more deeply, and we came up with uh, a definition that says really codependent behavior really is this. It's how much sin will I tolerate mine and another person's in order to keep control of a relationship, in order to get the outcomes I want in a relationship. That is so good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's hard hitting. It's hard hitting the, it's how much sin will I tolerate mine and the other person's in order to keep control of a relationship. So that I don't lose it or I get the outcomes I want in a relationship. But it's real subtle because it's hard to confront someone who is not dealing with a major substance abuse or behavioral abuse and says, I struggle with codependency, and then start calling that sin. Because right? because according to that de- definition, you, it's it's selfish. It's selfishness actually at the root of it. Yeah, that's which right. Which is counterintuitive to all the outward signs where they're trying to help. Right. They're trying. They're enabling. They they look like right. on the outside that they're helping. Yeah. But at the root of it is selfishness, so they can control. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that the codependent person or a person that's acting codependently it doesn't mean that they don't love the other no, person. Right. It doesn't mean that they're not trying to do some good things. The problem is most of us, without knowing it, have developed bad habits when it comes to what is healthy helping versus unhealthy helping so could we say that there's sometimes a motive why we help i mean would that be kind of part of maybe what you're trying to say there yeah sure because i mean i guess there's a motive with any time we help that's right that's right and sometimes we're just not quite aware of of the purity of our motive Right. right we do love them we do want to see the best but oftentimes i think your word a minute ago fear is one of the underlying motives that we don't always quite see that will drive us to adapt a pattern of unhealthy behavior. Okay. Well, back yeah. to you. You said you, you you got involved in recovery for your son. Yeah. Um, I think you talked to me a little bit before this, and you said you went to Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you did you find yourself the first time you ever went to a twelve step meeting? Did you go with him and sit down beside him because you were there to support him? Well, here, here's what happened. Okay, so I, I'm at the point that I'm seeking help. I'm they're just the counselor saying you need to be in a sport group. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Well, in Birmingham 20 years ago, that was pretty much if you're if you're not the addict, you go to an Al-Anon group. Right. Right? Now we've got a few different things that are supplemental to that, but back then that's what it was. You, you as the codependent would go to the Al-Anon group. I do remember one time though, uh, in one of the periods where my son was in rehab and came to visit, that he was advised to go to his AA meetings on the weekend while he was visiting. And I do remember us as a family, try, you know, him looking for the meeting and we were trying not to tell him where the meeting was. Mm-hmm. And then, but we did need to give him a ride cause he didn't have a car. We did that. And then we got there and I said, Hey, do you want me to go in your meeting with you? Right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, dad, I want you to come into my meeting with me. <laughs> so you could see even right. now, now what was that? Was there a love motive? And well, well, yeah, but there was also this idea that, Okay, he can't do it himself. Right, I got to go in there. Well, that's the reason I asked that question because I see that happen a lot of times. Yeah, Um, loved ones will come in with with 
their family member who's struggling with something, who knows they're struggling with something, or maybe yeah. have been told they struggle with something oftentimes by the court. Yes. Um, and, and so they're like, well, can I hold your hand to walk you in there to make sure you're going to be okay? And, um, and there's nothing wrong, I guess, with right. that because, you know, you're trying to help someone, right. but is it a healthy boundary you've set there? Because, from what I say a lot of times is, oh, I'm just here to help little Johnny right. or, you know, little Johnny's normally 35, 40 years old right. and, and could do it. Like you said, you know, yeah. are we equipping the, our loved ones with ability to handle their recovery? I, I don't know. It gets real cloudy. It there does. It takes a lot of work. It really does. It's not, it's not all black and white. One size doesn't always fit all. Uh, we've all got different personalities, different families of origin, different ways of learning things. By the time we get into those situations, nobody has been trained. There's no book on that of life until you get there. And then you got to really, there's a large hurry. I tell you this little story that to me is humorous, funny, but it gets to the heart of it is in terms of this idea of how vague this concept is. Because you'll hear a lot of people say, I struggle with codependency, but as soon as you start talking to them, they really don't know what they mean. And the truth is they think it's a virus that came into them from the outside. They got spread by you. That's right. That I, well, yeah, I may have been, the, they, they kind of talk about it like it's not my fault. It's a, it's this virus or it was my upbringing or it was my, well, all those things kind of contribute. But when it gets to the heart of the story is this, we've been, my wife and I have been doing recovery for a number of years, had, uh, had really started to grow. I was sober. She was learning what it meant about codependency and the subtleties of that and, we were helping start recovery ministries and all that good stuff. And so our youngest son had grown up a, a number of years watching us try to cope with uh, our older son's addictions. And and when I talk about addiction, I'm talking about at 19, he was an IV heroin injector. I mean, that's how bad it got. And for years, we didn't know if he was months out of those years, he's dead or alive or where he was. But so the youngest one saw some of that, but he also saw us doing recovery. And because it was Celebrate Recovery, a lot of the times it was open in the church, right? And so he, he, you got to hear it even more. It wasn't stuck off in a corner. It was kind of right. talked about. It was, it was becoming part of the culture. And so at home, he heard my wife planning and talking, right? Working our recovery, but also maybe talking to people or maybe in doing lessons. And, do, right? and so um, the funniest thing was when he was about 16, uh, after about five years of being immersed in this. So one night he goes out on a date, first date with this young lady. And so we had this habit that when he would come home, say 11, he would always knock on our bedroom door and say, I'm home. Checking in. So same thing that happened. My wife is away and go, Oh, Hey, come in tell me about, you know, I'm still half asleep, but they start this conversation. And so she had it go. Oh, he said it was really good. And this was really different because she just liked to talk about deeper things, you know? And, and so my wife is eating this up. So we're having, I'm still half asleep. Yeah. They're so going through the conversation and he said, but, but you know, she, she does have some problems though. <laughs> and so now I'm kind of waking up. You know? And so I'm wondering, what is this about? He's, right. She said, really? What, what? Well, you know, their family, they're divorced. They got a divorced family and uh, her mother feels a lot of shame about that. And I think she's absorbed some of her mother's shame and, and so she said their mother tries to adjust the way she does things. It's kind of unhealthy sometimes. And so the daughter is struggling with what that means, and she doesn't know how to fit in and right there. And so so about this time, I'm thinking, well, this is really interesting. I said, well, uh, well, what did you say to that? And he said, well, I told her that was codependency. <laughs> 
<laughs> so now I'm really awake. And I'm like, Code of how did he said he I said, Where did you get that? He said, That's all y'all ever talk about. <laughs> and so then I said, Well well, what did she say when you said that? She he, she said, Well, what's codependency? And he said, Well, nobody knows, but that's it. So it's it just points out to me this it's humorous, but there's this vagueness to this concept, even to those of us who think we struggle with it. Right. Yeah. So for me, I think, you know, Roger has pointed out a couple of times that, you know, that might be codependency. And I've always, I like to think of myself as not struggling with codependency mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. But I tend to say yes to too many things. Okay. Is that an element of codependency? It is. It is. Um, again, we were kidding a little while ago, right, with your saying yes and nodding no. Right? Yes. And that's a funny illustration of when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. And you had this idea that you could say, well, sure. sure. And then you were, you could kind of go either way if you wanted to, right? Or there's a little bit of sarcasm in there or there's whatever. So this whole idea of codependent behavior at its bottom is really how much sin will I tolerate my own and the other person's in combo in order to control life? Because okay? I get a lot of value from how much I can get done. So if I can get more done, mm-hmm. then I'm right. Yeah. I'm a better person. There you go. And so is that a form of codependency? Well, it, not really. It can be if it's in relationship in with other people in which by doing that, you, as Roger said earlier, am I unknowingly setting them up for failure because they don't have to grow themselves, right? Or because you get your identity out of that. That's where you got to be careful. I think God loves efficiency, right? I like to be efficient, but efficiency can also be a trap. Too. Right. Yeah. And one way I've always heard of the, one of the best ways to deal with codependency is setting boundaries. Talk to us a little about how that can can be helpful, not just for somebody who's codependent with an addict family right. member, but just anybody who who might feel like they have codependency uh, right. tendencies. Right, because it, it, as we said earlier, it doesn't take an addicted person in a family system to create codependent behavior. It's going to be there anyway. It's just a struggle to m- become aware of it and then work to change it. So. Yeah, setting boundaries would look something like this. I'm going to change the way. I'll always love you, but I'm going to change the way I help you because the way I've been doing it's been unhealthy for you and for me. So while you may not want to change, I've got to change. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And so the specifics vary from situation to situation to the age of the person that you're – are we dealing with an adolescent, 15-year-old, or are we dealing with a 25-year-old? Uh, are we dealing with someone that can do the things that we've been doing for them or that just absolutely can't due to some a handicap or mental illness or whatever? So one size doesn't fit all, but the wisdom of what we're talking about is me looking at myself, doing the inner work that Roger was talking about to look at motive and seeing what the real motive is. And there, is there some impurity in there? Am I doing this for selfish gain? Am I doing it out of fear? Am I doing it to control? Is is the fact that I'll have to suffer some pain if I let this person fall? Is that my motivation? Okay, Those are all clues to us that we've probably got to reassess some of the ways that we're behaving. And the boundary, one of the things to me that 
confusing about boundaries is sometimes the way they're taught or the way we catch them is this idea that if I set this boundary, they'll have to change. Right. <laughs> when I set a boundary, it means I got to change. Right. I've decided I'm not coming across that boundary the way I used to. And I'm going to ask you not to come across either. Yeah. For like my, my mom was the codependent in our family. Yeah. My dad was the one like, well, let's just write him off. I mean, we're done. He's never going to make it. He's going to be on the news. He's going to, he's going to be dead. Uh, my mother, not that my dad just stopped loving me, but you know, my mother's like, you know, let, let's, let's help him. I and mean, she would be the one that would bail me out of jail before I got there. Like yeah. I'd make the phone call. She's already posted bond for me before they booked me in. Yeah. But then she changed and she made a boundary to where she wasn't going to, um, bail me out anymore. Well, what happened? She was the one that had to change, not me. I kept doing my thing, right? but she quit, you know, by her quit doing that, it did kind of set something in motion in my life. That isn't the only thing that changed, but by her doing that, it kind of helped me. It kind of helped raise my bottom. There you go. You right. know, that's right. And I, I and my it. guess would be your mother had to suffer. Oh, she had Lord, to decide she? she would accept the pain to stop doing some of the things she were doing that she probably before then thought, this is what a mother has to do. This is what a Christian has to do. This is loving. And so to change and set the boundary and that step across it, I imagine that was pretty painful and probably fear-inducing. Yeah, yeah. well, now, I mean, she's probably resentful for it, <laughs> knowing you know, how much harm I did, yeah. did to her. I mean, she don't act that way to me. But I look at that now as a parent myself and go, how do you just stop? Because for me, it's almost like you have to come, you know, you you rationalize things in your head. And it's like, how do you stop loving your kid? Well, right. she didn't stop loving me because right. she quit paying my bail. She just stopped enabling me. Right. You know, so that's why I, had, I had to face consequences of my own actions. Yeah, and and that's why we, we do a, a support group uh, periodically in Birmingham called PAL, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. And it's not just parents. It can be any person 18 years or older who has a loved one brother sister husband wife parent child that is struggling with addiction and it's negatively impacting your life so it's similar to al-anon has an education component one of the things we teach each other and there's just that phrase we talked about a while ago is i'll never stop loving you i'll always love you but the way i help you has to change and i have to do it from my side same same thing but by doing that it means as a parent or a spouse or any of the loved ones that I have just decided that I'm going to have to, to go through some pain that I was trying to avoid. Yeah. Because to me, getting a codependent to look at themselves has got to be the, the hardest part of it because they're, I mean, they're, they're inherently just wanting to not look at themselves. Right. They have, their pride enters into it, which is a hard thing to talk to somebody about who is who is playing that role of codependent when the other person is doing some things that's wrecking your life. It is hard to then go and minister to a person that's behaving codependently and talk to them about their pride. That's, the, that's really hard. Well, the answer is always this to me. I don't have a problem. It's his drinking. It's his drug problem. I don't have a problem. If he would get better, I would be okay. Right. But that's not necessarily true. Right. That's that's exactly right. And so part of what's happened is my joy and my happiness depends on that other person getting better. Now, now that's would really it good. be better if they got? Absolutely. Would we want to continue to pray for that? Absolutely. Would we want to help in appropriate ways when we see them reaching 
Absolutely. But the truth is what's happened is we've made another individual's life our God. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's the, as you said, it's the most difficult thing to do because those people are suffering at the hands of another person, right? And it's difficult to come in. And then the, the, the toughest thing about real ministry consists of consistently having to talk to people who are suffering about their sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and then you're not, you know, when you don't set those healthy boundaries, you're really not hurt, helping the person anymore, even though you might think you are, you're hurting them because you're not taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So you're more unhealthy. And then, so you're helping them becomes even more unhealthy and you're not even helping them anymore. So the whole family is unhealthy just, at this point. It it's seems just, like a, yeah. like a cycle that just is so hard to just to break out of. If somebody who thinks they're struggling with codependency wanted to start to deal with it, mm-hmm. where would you suggest that they start? Well, there's a couple of, I think Al-Anon is still really good at that. Okay. It's uh, it's a, it's not an easy process. Recovery is rarely efficient. Okay. We talked about efficiency. Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's rarely efficient. It's not, it's not an easy process. It's not quick, but Al-Anon groups are good. Celebrate recovery groups do a good job of, because they will say, most celebrate recoveries usually have developed a codependency group for men and a codependency group for women. Not all, but most, right? And why is that important to have that in place? Well, if I do have a loved one in, who is in addiction, whether they're going to a group or not, or whether they're going to my celebrate recovery or not, I still have a place where I can go every week to hear teaching about the wisdom of this and then share in a small group setting that has a protective set of guidelines for me, right? That's safe, but effective where I can begin to hear other people processing the way they've been. And I'm bound to hear somebody ahead of me mm-hmm. in most yeah. weeks that gives me a little bit of insight and wisdom that I can start picking up tidbits on. Right. And then if you're lucky in a celebrate recovery, perhaps you've got a, a, a teaching that's both uh, spiritual, biblical and, and highly practical as well. And then you've got this additional odd thing that we all had to bump into sooner or later, which is this thing called a sponsor. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. This, this, this kind of uh, uh, thing we, we would have never dreamt of doing on our own, but because of the brokenness and we hear that there's this thing in recovery called a sponsor. And if you'll humble yourself and go ask somebody, they may say, yeah, I can help you. And then if you'll humble yourself and be vulnerable over a period of time, they can begin to pour into you and the awareness of the codependency becomes a little more vibrant. Like you said, the nuances start to come out and you begin to see there's a different way to do this. Right. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, you know, Art, we really enjoy talking to you about codependency and, um, you know, it's one of those things that's so different than drugs or alcohol with drugs or alcohol. I mean, it's complete abstinence. I got it. Um, you know, with codependency, you almost always tend to kind of fall back in maybe a codependent behavior. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's kind of like you know, you and I have been in many CR meetings where somebody's taking a sobriety chip, and so you got them for codependency, right? And there, the the discussion is kind of funny. How are we going to define this? Like, if right. I if I just thought codependently, can I still take a chip? <laughs> or if I maybe I relapsed last week, but I caught it real quick, and I, I yeah. And so that that's where I think this is so important. I know 
sometimes it sounds like codependency is a lot of fluff, but the truth is when we think about it biblically and wisely, it, it's really what's underneath most all of addiction, right? And so this the ability to become aware of where I'm living unhealthily when it comes to codependent behavior, whether it's with a codependent addict or whether it's just another person in my family or at work or whatever, that awareness alone can start me on a journey that will take me much farther and much deeper in my emotional and relational maturity than we ever would have thought of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something we do with all of our guests, and we're going to do it to you. And I did see a thousand dollar check. Sure, yeah, we'll see. Jason writes the checks. We'll, we'll you just have to see. Yeah. What's the old joke? Oh, you'll take a check. Yeah. I thought you wanted money. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> we ask every guest we bring on here um, these final four questions. That's kind of yeah. how we wrap up our show. And and I didn't blindside you with them. I did give you these. Yeah. So we'll see if you actually. But I'm a seven on the enneagram, so I already forgot them. So. <laughs> You're gonna wing it anyway, right? Uh, so here's the first one: Can you name a book other than the Bible, a movie, or podcast that has changed the way you look at a, a specific area in your life? Well, again, I'm a seven, so I don't like to be limited to one. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so one that was really significant for me was Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. There was a line in there that just laser beamed off the page that I believe God used in the process to bring me to the breaking point, that vital spiritual. So that was one. Uh, another one after that that's been amazing for me is called uh, "In the In the Image of God," in the likeness and image of God by Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. Amazing man, Paul Brand. The stories and the insight from that one have been tremendous. The most recent one that's really impacted me is called "Becoming Conscious" by Dr. Joseph Howell, who is a teacher in the Enneagram. Yeah. All right, number two, if you had a blank billboard to share advice with the world, what phrase would you put on it? Okay. Um, blank canvas. What would blank you Blank canvas. On okay, so this is not going to make a lot of sense, but I love this phrase. I'm an old basketball junkie, and I grew up in the era of John Wooden in UCLA, and he had a saying to his team that was, be quick but never in a hurry. And I, it took me a while to figure that one out. Be quick, but never in a hurry. And that is so much what recovery is about. Is Be quick means be in the right place at the right time, do the right thing, and you'll never have to get in a hurry and start making mistakes again. And so I love that phrase, and that's become kind of, for me, a reminder because my tendency is to want to speed up everything. I, I constantly think I'm behind. Isn't that recovery? I think everybody yeah. falls yeah. into that trap. Yeah, and I particularly, maybe because of the way I – that's a big one for me, and so I want to say I'm. I want to believe I'm. God's got me right where He needs me to be, and if I can stay present, so be quick, but never in a hurry is kind of awesome. Like, I really like that. Yeah. All right, number three. When talking about the twelve steps, what is your favorite step? Well, it's easy to say twelve because twelve is the giving back, and it's a lifestyle. I love that. But I think when I was going through them, when they first began to really infect me and get inside of me, um, it was really what I would call the six and seven turn. And especially in Celebrate Recovery, because in Celebrate Recovery with the principles and when, when it had that, uh, the way they phrased that, the six and seven, was that I voluntarily submitted to every change that God wants to make in my life. And for some reason, that one really warmed my heart. The fact 
number one, that I had a relationship with God by then, which I'd never thought I'd have. Right. And so to voluntarily submit to the God I never thought I'd have a relationship with was really heartwarming for me and a, a big deal. So I, I would say, again, I'm going to fudge. I'm going to say six, seven. That's cool because I've never heard anybody say those steps yeah. as their favorite because yeah. those are really the most difficult, in my opinion, yeah. to say I'm going to submit everything. Yeah. I mean, because it, it's easy to say that, and right. want, but it's hard to really do And I'll, I'll, I'll say, I think, honestly, in hindsight, I, was, I think it was as I was on the other side mm-hmm. that I could look. I don't. There was something about that phrase, voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make you. Because for most of my life into my 40s, I believed in the existence of God, but I didn't believe that he would have me in a relationship. So to come to the place where I could say I can voluntarily submit to all the change means I've got the relationship. Right. Yeah. Cool deal. Yeah. All right. Well, here's our last one. How can people reach you? Oh, um, okay. Uh, email. It's art, A-R-T, at, I'll say it and then I'll spell it, thrivebham.com, T-H-R-I-V-E-B-H-A-M.com. That's an email. You can go to the website, www.thrivebham.com. That tells you a little bit about me. And uh, there's a phone number on there if you want to call that. That's the way you can get me to chat or make an appointment or learn more about what we do. Yep. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for your time to come in here and share with us. Um, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, I told you that earlier. That was Those words you used were so sweet, so powerful. Life of, i got to tell folks, he, he's an encourager. and he <laughs> My just, wife is rolling on the ground right now laughing. I, I, <laughs> well, the, the wives are the last to know. Uh, <laughs> but – uh, that, to take the time to send those words to me, that was really powerful for me. And I think that's one of the things recovery has taught me to become a, an affirmer and encourager of other people. That's what my recovery coaching is about. My work in the Enneagram is about is call, seeing what God's created in a person and calling it out when it's coming true. So I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, what I had told him, Jason, I, I told him that he just had a warm spirit. I enjoyed talking to him and listening to him because he just had a really warm spirit. It's just it's easy to get to, to know you and to talk to you and to befriend you. Well, and I, and, I, and I can say that to the level, to the extent that that's true, it really has been the grace of God and through the venues of doing the 12-step work and Enneagram and so forth. But it's it's all the grace of God. But he's becoming, I think what he's doing Late in my life, he's. I'm beginning to see the seeds of what he created me beginning to blossom, and so it's a it's a real blessing to me when anybody calls that out and says that. Yeah, so I appreciate you doing that. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of our first live show. So we're going to yes. keep this posted on yeah. Facebook, and yeah. then we're also going to rip the audio off of this and put it onto our regular yeah, podcast, on where you can get it on iTunes anywhere else if anybody That's would right. like to listen to it. Yeah. And Jason is our producer that puts all that together. I have no clue how you do that. <laughs> and so if we ever lose Jason here, the podcast is over. <laughs> over. I am too stupid to do it, Art. Well, let me say thank you to you guys. I listen to your podcast. I love the fact that y'all do it. It's a service for people, and you are blessing people. Yeah, Cool. Yeah. We well, thank you, man. Well, it brings another one into the books, I guess. So, I'm Roger. I'm Jason. We're signing out of here. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.